The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, if you have your Bible, um, I'd love for you to open it to Romans uh, chapter 16, um, which you're probably asking yourself or thinking to yourself, that's, the, that's a really weird place to start at the end of a book, um, but that is completely on purpose. Um, another thing that's completely on purpose um, is the fact that you're here with us this week. Uh, I don't believe that there is, that there is anything in life that, is, that has not been orchestrated by God, that has not been ordered by God. I think you're here for a reason. In fact, I believe that you're here for a reason. And what we, what we have in front of us in this, in this book, um, in this letter to the church at Rome is, is what I would consider um, a masterpiece, actually. Um, as, I've been, as I've been reading and studying and praying and thinking and reading and studying and praying and thinking and doing all of those things on repeat over the last four months, I'm not sure that I've ever gone into a study um, with the anticipation that I have with you this morning. Um, And I'm thrilled that we're going to talk about the end of the book to set the stage for our next 16 weeks together in this letter. Um, There's a few things you need to know about this letter. If you are a history person, you are absolutely going to love the next 10 minutes. If you hate history, I'm in charge and I'm going to do it anyway. Um, So of all of the copies of ancient Greco-Roman letters we have, and we have about 14,000 of them, like private personal letters, the average private letter length was about 87 words, okay? So if someone were to write a letter in ancient times, the average letter length is 87 words. Words And that ranged in length from 18 to 290 words. So when they, they take all of these letters, the average length is 87 words. So just imagine that for a minute. Paul's average, however, was not 87 words. Paul's average was 2,494 letters, words. So when Paul wrote a letter, his average was 2,494. And this letter, Romans, that we're going to talk about today, has 7,114 words in it. In fact, Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, is actually the longest letter that we have a manuscript of from antiquity. So when you think about all 14,000 of those letters... And you think about the average being 87 words. The longest that we have is Paul's book of Romans. This is the longest one that we have. So of all of the things that we have, which means it's probably pretty important for us. Um, It was written, it would have been written on papyrus sheets, which were 10 inches long by 5 inches wide. And these would have been stitched together or glued together on a roll. We see that that image of a a roll. That's how this would have been um, put together. The oldest manuscripts we have of the Old Testament have, a, have like one column per page, about 25 letters per line, and about 30 lines per page. We actually have an image of a manuscript from, from the 4th century um, AD. Like this, is, like this is what this would have looked like. This is an example of a manuscript. Um, a secretary, the person who's actually doing the writing, could write about 85 lines per hour. 85 lines an hour with one and a half lines per minute, but this was not likely consistent hour after hour. If any of you have have ever done any work, you know, like you don't maintain over time, right? They would have probably had about five hours of writing time per day with all of the things going on in their lives that are completely different than ours, which is what we're going to talk about today as well. They They would have written about five hours a day. Now, there's some debate and discussion about this that we're going to have this week in our elders' meetings, and I cannot wait for this conversation. But likely, there would have been several drafts written. 
as, as they put these thoughts down, as in, in particular, and I'm just talking about letters in general, there would have been several drafts written, then revised. In Paul's case, a copy would have been made. A copy would have been made for himself. So, so as Romans is being put together, there would have been a copy made for Paul himself. And then the final copy, the final dispatched copy would have been sent on. So at 979 total lines, that's how many Greek lines would be in the book of Romans. Um, if I worked straight through, it would take me about 11 and a half hours. But like I said, they didn't work that way. One of the things that I do when I, in my, in my message prep, is I, I take whatever it is that we're reading in the Bible, and I get myself a notebook, and I handwrite out the whole thing. Now, I don't copy it. I paraphrase it. I study the Greek when I come across a word I don't understand. I take a minute and I pause and I think about it. And that process of writing the book of Romans was probably about nine weeks for me to put all together. So if we were to take into account the cost of supplies and labor, like a day's wage then and a day's wage now with the drafts and the notes and the final copy to be sent and the copy for Paul, we would have a cost for the sent letter to Rome and Paul's copy, we would have a cost of about $2,300. So think about that for a minute. $2,300 an hour day of what the cost of this, these two copies, the, the, the final draft, final manuscript, final sent copy and Paul's copy. And as I've been thinking about this letter that we have over the past several months, I think, I think that this letter is the second most important thing ever written in history. Of course, the first would be the four Gospels. But Romans isn't the second most important thing that's ever been written in history because of all the details of how many lines and how many pages and how many words and how much cost. It's the most important Second most important thing ever written because it's about the most important thing ever, and that's the good news of Jesus. I think that this letter has probably had more of an impact on Western thought and civilization than probably any other thing that we have a copy of. The way we think is oriented not just from the letter to the Romans, but from the Bible itself. And this letter does something really amazing. It is confronting the most powerful political social, religious system that's ever been devised up to this point in history. It's telling the good news of Jesus Christ to the most powerful empire to this point in history, the Roman Empire. And specifically what Paul's letter to the church at Rome is doing, it's confronting the good news, the gospel of that empire. We talked about this back in our Mark series. We talked about how every era, every time, every empire has its own set of good news, has its own gospel, has its own understanding of the way the world works, has its own understanding of what salvation is and where it comes from. And Rome is no different. Rome had a mindset, had a gospel of good news. And one of the things you should know is the word gospel was a Greek word before it was a Christian word. And that's not even the word. It was a translation of a Greek word. And it was used, one of the ways it was used is on the, it's called the preen inscription, which is an inscription on a stone. I'm going to read to you part of this. And I want you, I want you to put your Bible ears on for a minute as I read to you from the preen inscription. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aspect. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, 
who being sent us and our descendants as Savior, who has put an end to war, has set all things in order, and whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of the earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. See, this inscription refers to the birthday of Augustus Caesar, and I wonder if that name means anything to you. If you're listening with your Bible ears, does Augustus Caesar or Caesar Augustus mean anything to you? And this inscription on this stone was written as the beginning of an era, the beginning of the gospel announcing that his kingdom, Caesar's kingdom, was heralding peace and salvation for all people. And over time, that word gospel was used to herald the good news of the arrival of a kingdom. The reign of a king that brought war to an end. So that all people, every person who surrendered to that king and pledged allegiance to this king would be granted salvation from destruction. And I wonder again, does Caesar Augustus mean anything to you? Does that name sound familiar? Don't miss the fact that Caesar is not just seen as God's son, is not just worshipped as God's son, but he is worshipped as God himself. And peace and security are found in the worship of Caesar Augustus. This good news of Caesar Augustus, this gospel, culminated in what's known as Pax Romana, which is a 200-year time frame of relative peace, and it was the height of the Roman Empire. So what does that mean, the height of the Roman Empire? Well, it means if you were wealthy, you had hot and cold running water in your house that was actually metered. We're talking 2,000 years ago, hot and cold running water. They had a police system and a fire protection system, and a sewage system to deal with the waste. And this was a pretty good gospel. This was a really good gospel, if you were wealthy. 30% of the people in the Roman Empire were enslaved. And and, and we hear that word slave, and we automatically think of race-based slavery. That is not what's going on here. Many of these slaves were taken as war captives. Piracy and trade contributed to slavery. And anyone who was born of, a, born of a slave was automatically a slave. Slaves were status symbols. In fact, wealthy Romans would appear in public with their slaves, kind of like an Instagram post. This is how wealthy I am. Look at all of the slaves who are here with me. Many other people were indentured servants. These are people who who owed a debt and they couldn't pay it, so they sold themselves into slavery to the person that they owned, that they owed money to. This was a very common practice. This is a completely different world of ours. And here's the thing about slavery 2,000 years ago. We ought to know um, that these slaves had no rights. There was no one arguing for their freedom or their inclusion. It's really important for us as 21st century people because we like to think, well, if I had lived in that day, I would have been standing up for those slaves. No, you wouldn't because no one was. This is a decidedly Christian idea that we're going to talk about when we go through the book of Romans. But no, you would not have been standing up for the slaves. In fact, you likely would have been one. You would have had no rights. You would have had no voice. The entire culture of Rome was built on oppression. And no one cared. No one. It's just the way it was. Ernest Baker says this, The Roman Empire was a religious as well as political reality. Just as a city-state entailed a civic religion, an empire-state entailed an empire worship and an empire worship in turn entailed the worship of 
and emperor. See, Caesar's good news is all about Caesar. It's all about Caesar. It's the glorification of the cult of the emperor. It's the totalitarianism of state power blended with violence. We talked about this last year when we went through the book of Revelation. Caesar was the divine savior who brought peace through the sword. That's the good news of Julius, of Caesar Augustus, and every Caesar after him. The divine savior who brought peace through the sword. But not everyone bowed to Caesar. They worshiped someone else. Let me share with you from his birth announcement. At that time, the Roman emperor... Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. There were shepherds staying in fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. They were afraid, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, The Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth lying in a manger. See, it's this child born in an embarrassingly humble manger that these other people worshipped and recognized as divine Savior. So in a lot of ways, the, the book of Romans is really a story of, of two kings, of competing narratives, of competing stories, of competing gospels. Andy Stanley said this last week during the Global Leadership Summit. He said, one is a king who demands that you lay down your life for him. The other is a king who laid down his own life for you. We're seeing these two competing stories, these two gospels come together. And we have to ask some questions. What's the situation of the people who worship this other king? Like we know the people who are wealthy in Rome and the gospel that they preach and teach and embody and live out gives them hot and cold running water. Gives them fire protection, gives them sewage, gives them all of these things. Well, what were the, what were these people who worship this other king like well the churches in Rome was were initially a Jewish thing they were initially a Jewish creation in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost we read that Jews from Rome were present on the day of Pentecost so if you remember that scene beginning of the book of Acts all the all the Christians all the followers of Jesus are together in an upper room the holy spirit comes down upon them they start speaking all of the different languages of all of the different nations who were gathered in Jerusalem during that time for Pentecost and some of those people were from Rome some of those Jews were from Rome so it is likely that their conversion began in Jerusalem and then they returned home back to Rome taking their new faith with them. And over time, Gentiles were converted and became followers of Jesus. So your question, my question is, how do we know this is all true? How do we know the makeup of the church at Rome? Well, when we look at Romans 16, we're going to see that. Here's a few reminders for you that we just need on repeat in our brain Whenever we read the Bible, number one, it wasn't written in English. I know that's obvious, but we have to remember that when we are reading the Bible, we are reading a translation of languages that like Dave Robinson and maybe two other people in the room have any understanding of. We're not reading a book. We're not reading a letter that was written in English. Here's the second thing. We talk about this one all the time. It's not written to us. It's written for us. 
We're reading someone else's mail. So if you were walking down the street and you saw a piece of paper on the floor, on the ground, and it said, Dear Susie, and you're not Susie, and you read that letter, and you don't understand what's in it, that's going to make sense, right? Because it wasn't written to us, it's written for us. And what this means is, this is going to be hard for us to understand. Sometimes we get into this space when we read the Bible, and we don't understand, and we're like, I just want to give up. No, we're reading someone else's mail. This is meant to be understood by us. This is going to require time. It's going to require effort. It's going to require energy of us. And I love the way that Dave Robinson put this last week. He said, we are a CC'd, possibly a BCC'd recipient of these letters. I think that's so good. You know, when you send an email to someone and you put someone in the CC line, like you want them to read it too, you may not want them to, to, to interact with what's going on in the letter, but you kind of want them to know, you want them to see what's going on. We are a CC'd or perhaps even a BCC'd recipient. And I also want you to remember that when you see the word you in this letter or any letter in the New Testament, it's written to the churches. It's written to the gathering of a certain group of people in a certain specific place. It doesn't mean you. And this is important for us because it's easy as 21st century Western people because we're individualized, right? What's God's message for me this morning? I know I'm going to read the Bible and he says you this, so that must mean it's for me. Nope, this is for the churches. This is for a group of gathered people. And again, it doesn't mean it's not for us. It was to the churches as a body before it was to them as individuals. So they would have understood this letter within the context of them as a group of people. It's to their churches before it is for our church. It's to them before it's for us. Does that make sense? So who were they? Let's read Romans 16. Verses 1 to 18. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a deacon in the church in Centria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many, especially to me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I'm thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Also give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Man, this next part of the verse, this next part, every single time I read it, I like it. Greet my dear friend Epinetus. He was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. Will you let that sink in for a minute? Give my greetings to Mary, who has worked so hard for your benefit. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who were in prison with me. They're highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apellus, a good man whom Christ approves, and give my greetings to the believers from the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet the Lord's people from the household of Narcissus. Greet my, give my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's worker, and to dear Persis, who has worked so hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. Give my greetings to Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who meet with them. Give my greetings to Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and to Olympus and all the believers who meet with them. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. All the churches of Christ send you their greetings. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you've been taught. Stay Away from them. 
Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They're serving their own personal interests. By smooth-talking, glowing words, they deceive innocent people. Like, on the surface, this passage just seems to be a list of names and greetings. One of my friends here at Westway says that when she hits this part in the Old Testament, she skips it. It's called the begats, right? The long list of names that we think don't have any meaning, don't have any purpose. But these names provide tremendous insight into the makeup of the churches in Rome and the realities of the ethnic and cultural divisions. And it's a reminder to us that these are real people. These are real people. Based on Paul's greetings to all of these different people, one of the things we know is he's writing to about half a dozen different house churches made up of about 20 to 30 people each. The church at Rome didn't meet in a room like this. They weren't allowed to because they, they worshiped a God who taught a different gospel. They met in their homes and they met in different household groups. And here are just a few of them. Priscilla and Aquila, Aristobulus, Narcissus, Asyncritus and company, Philogius and Julia. And see, these house churches represented diverse ethnic, gender, and socioeconomic groups. And we know that because we can look at the names that are written. There are Jewish names. Mary, Andronicus, Junia, Aquila, Prisca, Herodian, Rufus and his mother. Those are Jewish names. There are Latin names. Ampelatus, Julia is also a Latin name. Urbanus, Greek names, all the rest of them. You should know that common names like Hermes, Nereus, and Persis were common slave names. What Paul is revealing to us, if we will not hit Romans 16 and think, oh, I'm so glad this book is over. What Paul is revealing to us, what God through Paul is revealing to us, is the diversity that's taking place within the church. And if you're familiar with the Bible, several of those names are going to be familiar to you. Priscilla and Aquila. We met them, well, Paul met them, in Acts chapter 18. When we read Acts chapter 18, what we learn is that Priscilla and Aquila left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. So you were getting insight into the church. Claudius Caesar's wife had an affair. And I guess in ancient Rome, when you're Claudius Caesar and your wife has an affair, you marry your niece. Because he had to prove that he was, he was a true believer in the Roman state and the Roman religion, which were one thing, he had the Jews expelled. Well, elsewhere in the book of Acts, we see, we see that there are riots whenever, whenever Christ is preached. So if you think back to the book of Acts, and this is why understanding your Bible is so important. When we think back to the book of Acts, one of the things we see is it started out as a, as a Jewish breakout, right? So Paul or any of the apostles or disciples, they would go and they would begin to preach Jesus. They'd start out in the synagogues. And as you read through the book of Acts, there's riots that always follow in those cases. So this is likely happening in Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius, reflecting on this period when Claudius was emperor, says this. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Sound familiar? Claudius expelled them from Rome. See, Crestus is thought to be an alternate spelling for Christ. So all of this is going on. And this letter is written several years after the fact. Claudius has died and the Jews are beginning to come home. The Jews are beginning to return to Rome. They had been kicked out, Claudius dies, and they're beginning to return home. And this causes problems because before they left, you know who was in charge of the churches? The Jews. Because it was a Jewish thing. And the Gentiles were simply converts to this new faith. 
once likely leaders in their churches, they return home and who's in charge? The Gentiles. Not them. They've lost their power. They've lost their place. They've lost their position. Think about how some of you felt, have felt over the last couple of years as, as, you've, as you've returned back to church. Like all of a sudden, like oh, there's all these new things going on. There's these new people in charge. Who are these people? Where did they come from? Like I want my seat. Well, this is, this is that times about a million. See, while the Jews were in exile from Rome, there was this whole new Christian culture that formed, and they, they weren't following the Torah. We're going to read the letter of Romans, and we're going to see all these little fights that they're having about food choices and, and when they meet and, and all of these different things. And that's because there's a different group of people that are now in charge and power and privilege are colliding. And what Paul is doing is he's warning them against these divisions. He's calling them to unity because there are people who want to reject others based on ethnic and racial reasons. There are people who want to reject others based on economic reasons. There are people who want to reject others based on cultural reasons, on religious reasons. And my question is, do you see any similarities between their time and our time? See, in the past, the Jews had a really hard time accepting the Gentiles into the faith. That's the book of Acts. The entire book of Acts is built around how do we proclaim the truth and the reality of Jesus to these Gentiles? And like, how do we, how do we make them Christians? What does it look like for someone who wasn't born a Jew to become kind of a part of an offshoot of Judaism? And oftentimes the, the answer to that question in the book of Acts is we have to make them Jews first, which is why they always fight about circumcision. It's so why they fight about what they have to eat, right? Because in the mind of many Jews at this time, the pathway to becoming a good Christian was to be a Jew first. They didn't have it all worked out by this time, but they had a lot of that worked out. Again, that's the book of Acts. And now in Rome, the shoe is on the other foot. The people who were the Jews once in power, once in privilege, once with all the prestige, have now come home and they're not in charge. And it's now the Gentiles who are having trouble accepting the Jews. There's something to the order of these greetings. This is Ben Witherington and Darlene Hyatt. Notice that Paul does not directly greet his friends and coworkers and relatives in Rome. He has the dominant Gentile audience do it for him as part of his rhetorical strategy to help affect some sort of reconciliation or unity among the Christians in Rome before he arrives there. In particular, he wants the marginalized Jewish Christians, many of them newly back in Rome from exile, to be embraced. It's not at all an accident that Paul again and again in this passage uses the verb espasomai. This verb does not merely mean greet in some perfunctory way. It literally means to wrap one's arms around and embrace someone. And when coupled with the command to offer the holy kiss, it amounts to a command to treat those named as family, to welcome them into one's own home and circle. Paul is going all out to create a new social situation in Rome, overcoming the obstacles to unity and, and discord dealt with in chapters 14 and 15. So as we're going to read in this letter, Paul's calling the churches and the, peop the people who are included in the gospel of Jesus Christ in Rome to embody and live out that inclusion. He's calling them to live out and embody the principles of humility. They're not just part of a club. They're not just part of a group that gathers together in a home and has a meal together. They're called to be unified. He's telling them to mimic the one that they worship by laying down their lives for the good of the other. See, to set aside their racial and ethnic and socioeconomic differences. He's calling them to set that stuff aside. 
See, that's the gospel of Rome. The gospel of Rome says we're going to be divided. The gospel of Rome says something completely counter to the gospel of Jesus. And here's, here's the summary. If I were to, I've got about 16 summaries for Romans. Like when you read the whole thing and you're writing it down, like it just happens. The gospel of Jesus is available to all, regardless of your name. This is what's going on in chapter 16. Regardless of your name, your background, your history, or your race. And now that you're saved, you are called to live on mission, united together as his body. That's those last two verses. That's 17 and 18. See, there are going to be some people, Rome, who are going to try and sneak into your house meetings. And what they're going to do is they're going to bring up division. They're going to create strife. They're going to walk in and they're going to see the person who's supposed to be your slave. And they're going to wonder why you're not posing with them for Roman Instagram. They're going to wonder why you're not coming in with your entourage of people expecting everyone to bow down to you. And these people are going to be like, hey, this is how we do things in Rome. So who wrote the letter? Well, Depends on what you mean by rote. According to Romans 16.22, which we did not read today, there was someone named Tertius. See, here's what's going on. We, we often have this image, like when we, think about, when we think about Paul writing Romans, my guess is the first thing that comes to your mind is Paul is in some dank prison cell with water dripping off the ceiling. And there's one of those little lamps there that he's constantly having to do. And like he's thinking and he's writing and he's thinking and he's writing. And um, you just couldn't be more wrong. Like that is not by any stretch of the imagination what happened. Uh, this person, Tertius, was Paul's amanuensis another word for secretary, a person who's often hired to write because most people couldn't write. This is one of the things that we take for granted in our day. We live in a highly literate society where people can read and write. Well, in ancient Rome, that just wasn't the case. Some people considered literacy was if you could just read, you didn't have to be able to write. But many people in ancient times couldn't read or write. One of the things that if we were to look in other letters of Paul, I completely nerded out on this. I've got about a six-hour version of this sermon if you want it. Um, like if you read in other of Paul's letters, he'll do something crazy like at the end of, of the letter. It, it'll say, I have written this with my own hand. And usually it's put in a, in, a, in a block font that's bigger because that's literally where Paul takes the parchment from or the papyrus from the persons who's, who he's dictating to or the secretary. And he will write that because Paul didn't write these letters. Like he, he didn't put pen on paper except in those instances so secretaries had a couple different roles. Um, some of the secretaries were dictationists. So in this situation, like Paul would just dictate, would just tell Tertius what to write. Other secretaries functioned as an editor. Other secretaries functioned as a co-author. Scholars believe that this letter was written while Paul was in Corinth for at least 18 months. If you remember your Acts chapter 18, who did Paul meet in Corinth? Priscilla and Aquila, who were there from Rome, who had been kicked out from Rome. And can't you just imagine? Like when, when I hit this part in my message this week, like I went and I literally gathered all of our pastors together and like I talked about it. I was just like so excited. Can you imagine Paul knowing he's going to write a letter to Rome and he has two people in Corinth with him who are from Rome? Can you imagine the insight that they would have had for him? The information? It's important to know that, that Paul didn't know all of these people that he talked about in, in Romans chapter 16. Some of them he certainly did, but the most of them he didn't. Priscilla and Aquila probably dropped their names. You know, would be, you know who would be awesome if you mentioned? It'd be awesome if you mentioned this person. 
It'd be awesome if you mentioned that person. I just imagine this conversation because Priscilla and Aquila and Paul were tent makers. And what do you think they talked about while they're, tent, while they're making tents all day? Right? They're talking about what's happening in Rome. Based on ancient letter writing practices, the way that Paul introduces Phoebe at the end of the letter, it's going to rock some of your minds. Phoebe was likely the carrier of the letter. So Paul and Tertius write this whole thing out, get it done, final draft. Phoebe, take this to Rome. Not bad for a guy who gets a rap for hating women, huh? Hands her the letter, she takes it there. And this is debated, completely debated. Some people believe that Phoebe actually delivered the letter and not just physically, but read it. That's debated. We don't know that, but that's a discussion. So she would have read it. In any case, it was read aloud by someone because most people couldn't read. They didn't have a Bible. Whoever it was that read this letter to the church at Rome did not say, okay, everybody, everybody take out Romans. Everybody take out your Bible. Okay, everybody, open up you version to Romans chapter one. We're going to read this today. Wait a minute, let me go make a bunch of copies of this. I mean, did everyone get their hand out? Did you all get your resource guide? No, the, this person would have stood up at least in front of one of these churches, if not all of them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine reading this over and over and over and over again? The thing that I'm trying to communicate to you today is that what we are reading is to a group of people who live in a vastly different time and space than our own. It's to a group of people who are living in a vastly different set of circumstances than our own, and yet they are strangely similar. So then we have to wrestle with this question, what do we do with it? How do, we, how do we read through this letter that's written to some, someone else's mail? And what do we do with it? One of the things that you should know is um, when, we, when we sit down and we, we kind of make out our preaching calendar um, for the coming year, we actually just did that for 2023 um, over the last six weeks. We talk, we think, we pray, we discuss, we have all of these different conversations about it. And then we just like put it down on, we put it on the board. And the thing that we rarely know is, is what's going to happen as we work on the series. Like this is what we want to talk about. This is kind of why, but we don't know all of those details we don't know what's going to come out. And when I sat down for my initial read on this um, several months ago, there was a word in chapter 1, verse 6 that left, off, that left off the page to me. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Christ Jesus. As soon as I saw that word included, I knew that was going to be the series title. And as I read, turned the page, Page after page after page after page. That concept of inclusion kept revealing itself. See, we are included in the sinfulness of man. When we read through the first few chapters of the book of Romans, it's a depressing diagnosis of humanity. So we're going to talk about next week. It's a completely depressing diagnosis of humanity. And no one gets off. No one is disincluded from the sinfulness of mankind. We are all included in that. And then as I continue to read and continue to flip page after page and word after word, what I saw is we all have the opportunity to be included in God's deliverance through the work of Jesus on the cross. See, the book of Romans doesn't just end with your inclusion as a sinful person. It ends with the opportunity that we all have to be included in the salvation of each and every one of us. Romans is a mes message of inclusion. It's a message of hope. 
And as we read through Romans, we're going to see that while Jesus paid the cost of our inclusion, this is so crucial for us to get. Jesus paid the cost of our inclusion. This inclusion is not without cost or expectation on our part. Think back to when you, when you were a kid and you were going to play a game with two opposing teams and there was always the captain, right? And their job was to pick the team. We all wanted to be included in that, right? Because we thought, we thought that we had a specific skill to bring to that team. So we wanted to be included. Except for me and basketball. Okay, if we were to go into the gym today and you were to watch me shoot a basket, like you would think I was joking. But see, we have the opportunity to be included. We have an opportunity to be included for a purpose. And it's not just to be included and say we're on the team. Our part is to sacrifice ourselves through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the transformation that he provides. And as we read through Paul's letter to Rome, what we're going to see is none of us are exempt from that sacrifice. None of us. None of us are exempt. We're all included. And there are lots of ways that you can demonstrate your inclusion in God's work in this body. There are lots of ways. I'd have four for you today. Number one is the garden. How many of you love fresh vegetables? Let's see it. It's harvest time, and our garden team is ready for some helpers. This is a great opportunity for inclusion. Evelyn's going to be in the lobby for the thing I'm going to talk about next. But if you want to talk to her about gardening, I would love for you to do that. Becky briefly mentioned it. Supplies on Wednesday nights, we are doing something that we haven't ever done before. We're having a midweek piece that's going to reach children, students, Embrace Grace Girls and adults all here on site. One of the things we're going to do is we're going to have a meal for everybody, getting all of us together in one place. And we need some supplies for that. What we're going to do is we're going to ask you, our church body, to help us meet that need. And we've made it so easy for you. If you go and see Evelyn, you'll see a list just like this with pictures. For those of you who struggle with words like I do sometimes. If I want to know what kind of plates I should get, it's, it's on this page. It tells me. And we've even told you what the items are that we need. If we just had 10 people by the 500 count of napkins, we'd have 5,000 napkins. We'd be set for napkins for the entire year. We're just asking you to go out in the lobby today. Take one of these and the next time you go grocery shopping, just pick something off the list and bring it with you. This will make our Wednesday night piece so great. Here's the third thing. Small groups. You will feel like you are a part of something when you're actually a part of something. When you are engaged. See, the early church, they, I don't think we would technically call them small groups. And our small groups are not little churches. But this is the feel. See, our small groups are meant to help you grow in your relationship with God. And if you use your study guide, and I'm telling you, if you don't have one today, when you walk out of here, there might not be any left next week. I urge you to grab a study guide on your way out and join a small group. Be a part of a small group. Because then you can talk about things at a deeper level than what we do on Sunday. And then here is the last one for today. It's communion. See, this is an opportunity. I want to encourage you to take out your communion element. This is an opportunity for us to demonstrate that we are included in God's work. For us to participate in what God has done. This is a symbol of our inclusion. We're showing by our participation in it that we're in. 
that the way that Jesus has asked us to remember him, which is more important than Christmas, which is more important than any other thing that we do to remember Jesus, the way that he has invited us, has included us in his sacrifice is through this. So if you would take out your piece of bread. This is Christ's body that has been given to you. Take and eat. And then the cup, this is Christ's blood, which has been poured out for you. Take and drink. Let's pray. God, this morning, we talked about a lot of details. And it is so easy for a guy like me to get excited by those details. To be in wonder and in awe of the way you, you orchestrate life. You orient people towards you. It's, it's really easy for me to fall in love with those things. And I know that there's a small percentage of people who are, who are right there with me this morning. And I just ask that, that as we embark on this journey together through Paul's letter to the church at Rome, that we would not be in love with Paul's letter to the church at Rome, but we would be in love with your son, Jesus, who the letter is about. And by be in love with him, I mean be in love with him. Desire to mimic him. Desire to match his behavior. Desire to fulfill his commands to love and serve and meet the needs of others. Help these words to be more than words. Help us to see them as beautiful and not because it's the longest letter of antiquity that we have, but because it's about the most beautiful person we know, and that's your son, Jesus. May these words help us fall in love with him. And then may we be transformed by those words. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.